Welcome to Solder Smoke, a podcast about wireless technology. We talk about everything from old-time crystal radios to modern digital satellites. All are welcome. Please join us in the Solder Smoke. Hey, good afternoon. It's, let's see, Sunday the 10th of June. Wow, this is uh, Solder Smoke 144. All the normal excuses for being a bit late, plus uh, summertime is kicking in and that of course keeps us all away from the shack more than normal in the united states memorial day um, at the end of may is the unofficial beginning of summer and um, we uh, we had a great time on memorial day Uh, elisa and i go out for uh, coffee every sunday morning and um, it just happens that the place that we go to in uh, here in northern virginia is very close to Route 66, which is one of the main routes into Washington, D.C. from the west. And we happened to arrive uh, on Memorial Day, I think the day before, um, at the same time that the the uh, Harley-Davidson motorcycles that were coming to town for the traditional annual Rolling Thunder event uh, were coming in. Guys, you've never seen so many motorcycles it was unbelievable. We we were at a, on a highway overpass looking down. They were coming in in a column of twos. They were probably moving at about 30, 35 miles an hour. Um, we stood there for a solid half hour and watched them go past. And we didn't see the end of them. They just kept on coming and coming. I checked later on about the number of bikes that they expect to come to town uh, for the Rolling Thunder event, and they estimate 350,000. Think about that, 350,000 Harley-Davidson uh, motorcycles, mostly Harley-Davidsons, although we did see, <laughs> we got a chuckle because there was the occasional uh, Vespa <laughs> motorbike that we're familiar with from Italy with a brave person going along waving uh, amidst all the, uh, the the real heavy hog Harley-Davidson uh, motorcycles. That was a lot of fun. You know, well, the other thing I got a kick out of is we were standing in the overpass. As they went below us, a lot of the um, the motorcycles would toot their horn. And um, one of them was tooting the horn with the unmistakable rhythm of CQ. He was calling CQ on his motorcycle horn. And the, the extra kick that I got out of it was that before I could even say, hey, CQ, uh, Elisa, who's been listening to quite a few CQs over the years, looked at me and said, that guy's calling CQ. <laughs> so uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Memorial Day was a good day for ham radio, not only the guy calling CQ and the 350,000 motorcycles, but uh, I, I came home and uh, got on 17 meters and managed to work... Uh, uh, JK4 CHT using, uh, I was using only about 10 watts on 17 sideband. My first real, uh, Japan contact from, uh, from Northern Virginia. I think on this tour or even on the last, I don't recall working a lot of, uh, Japanese stations. And of course, that's real exotic DX. And we had a nice, uh, nice little chat. That was, uh, that was fun. Always fun to work, uh, something really long haul and exotic. Um, a few days later, on, I think it was the 4th of June, we had the transit of Venus. You know, basically a little miniature eclipse with uh, Venus going in front of the sun. And it was uh, 
set to kick off at uh, 6.04 p.m. on uh, Tuesday of last week. And uh, that's around, right around the time that I'm pedaling my bicycle down the Washington and Old Dominion Trail. So there I was pedaling along and uh, kind of conscious of the fact that uh, I needed to get home to take a shot at seeing the transit of Venus, which was a major event for uh, amateur astronomers. And on the path, uh, on the bike path, uh, alongside the path, a number of um, my fellow amateur astronomers had set up telescopes. And they, as I passed them, they were uh, nervously looking at their watches and staring up at the clouds. And I stopped with one group and I talked to them a little bit about it. And I told them, I said, well, you know, I'm going to go home and set up my scope too. And they said, well, you better hurry. You're going to miss it. And I, so I pedaled faster and I was looking at the clouds. It was really quite overcast here you know, that day. But just as I pulled in the driveway on the bike, the, the clouds parted, the, the direct rays of sunlight arrived in the front yard, and I ran into the house. I still had my bicycle vest on and my helmet. <laughs> I looked like a real madman. <laughs> and I dragged out the telescope. I went with the um, four-and-a-half-inch uh, reflector and uh, got it set up out in the front yard in record time. I had a little piece of uh, paper from the printer on a little clipboard, and I quickly got the sun in the focus and you know, the, it was, you know, the clouds came back and then they came out again and then kids from the neighborhood came over and I got nervous because I wasn't going to be able to show them the transit of Venus. And it was, guys, the, the pressure was on. And I, I really sympathized with those um, 19th century and maybe even 18th century scientists who, who went on long journeys to, uh, to be able to see the transit of Venus and then were skunked by the clouds. But uh, I, uh, I stuck with it. And um, I got, uh, I finally, we finally got to see it. And it was, I guess it must have been around 6.15, just a few minutes after the, the transit began. I, I clearly got the sun. Now, you know, you're obviously not going to look at it through the telescope. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> Health and safety, as they say in the UK. But uh, I uh, was projecting it onto the piece of paper. And sure enough, there it was. First, I saw the sunspots, which was great fun. You know, I was kind of, you have a tendency to look at the center. And I was looking at the center. And there were uh, a number of large sunspots very clearly visible. And then I looked off to the edge. And sure enough, there was the little circle, the shadow of, uh, of Venus as Venus uh, moved in front of the sun. We got a, a great view of it. Like I said, it was kind of in and out, but all the kids from the neighborhood came over. They all got to see it. Their parents came over. They got to see it. And my status as a man of science in the neighborhood rose astronomically. What can I tell you? It was great. Um, Billy had his uh, iPhone 4, and he pulled that phone out, and he he got it in position, snapped the picture. He got a really great shot. If you take a look at the soldersmoke.blogspot.com um, blog, you'll and look up uh, transit of Venus. Just a few articles back, you'll see his picture, and it really, really was great because you could see the well. You see the the circle of the sun. You see Venus going in there. You could see the clouds. You could see that we're we're looking at it through the clouds. Uh, great fun, and uh, we were happy to to get that shot. So that was a good. A good scientific moment here uh, during the during the last week. I've also um, let's see. Next thing I want to tell you guys about was I've uh, finished up the kick panel 75 meter DSB rig. Well, you know I, I've I've finished it as much as any homebrew project can be finished. There's still a few things I want to do, but it's in operation and I have it on the uh, on the operating table there. 
on the operating bench in the operating position. The operating table sounds like I'm still doing surgery on it. And I still have some surgery to do, but I'm, I've moved it off the workbench and over into the operating position. And I've been having a lot of QSOs with this thing. Really a lot of fun. I take back all of the bad things I said about 75 meters. It is a bit insular. There are frequencies that seem to have been homesteaded and uh, maybe even, uh, in the view of the users, uh, bought and paid for. <laughs> but... I haven't had any trouble making uh, friendly contacts, and I've actually heard people calling CQ, and I've responded. I've run into old friends. I uh, ran into people I knew from the local QCWA chapter. I um, hooked up with a bunch of guys here in the um, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia area who um, sort of have a common connection with uh, the Merchant Marine. I have no connections with the Merchant Marine, but they welcomed me in, and they were delighted to talk to my double sideband rig so that was uh, that was great fun and it's just been it's been a real hoot i've had a great time with it i gotta say i i really love the neophyte receiver that i built for this thing and i know the neophyte receiver sometimes gets bad reviews you know what i'm talking about here the neophyte it's basically an ne602 or sa612 just the, the gilbert cell mixer chip followed by an LM386 audio amplifier chip. Those are the, the only two active devices. It's really simple. Um, I never built one before. And uh, so I built one for this this rig. And I got to tell you, I, I really like it. I, uh, it. It sounds great. It's got that wonderful, broad, clear, and direct conversion receiver sound. Um, I The only... Uh, kind of volume control that I have is a 5k pot that is between the antenna and the um, and the filter in front of the uh, the 602 chip it's just great I, I really recommend it if you're looking for a, a, a simple receiver to build don't uh, you know don't discount the neophyte and you know I had my prejudices against the neophyte because of the whole chip thing, you know, we um, I'm more into discrete components. But when you think about it, both of the chips in there are the kind of chips that we can understand. I mean, it's possible to get the, uh, the circuit diagram for a Gilbert cell mixer, and for the NE602 chip for that matter, and see what it's all about and understand it, and you have the same kind of uh, almost component level understanding of that chip as you would with a discrete component rig. Same thing for the LM386. It's just a bunch of transistors lumped together on an IC chip to give you the audio amplifier. So there's no real kind of mystery black boxes in there, I tell myself. So um, anyway, three cheers for the neophyte. I did have some interesting kind of technical problems with this rig, and, and I discovered why I had so many so much difficulty um, making contact with with the rig. I think when I was in the UK, I, I had great difficulty making contacts with this thing. It may have been because my antenna in the uh, concrete canyons of uh, central London was uh, pretty inadequate. But I also discovered that there's something of a frequency shift problem. Now, here here's how it is now. Um, I, I the, the only common stage on this rig is the... Um, is the VFO. I built a VFO 
one of the only VFOs I've ever built. I've, I've usually used uh, variable crystal oscillators, but for this one I went with a real VFO, thinking that it shouldn't be that difficult to get a stable VFO going on the 75 meter band. I was right. The, uh, the VFO is very, very stable. I, um, no problem at all. But uh, what I did was I, I, sw I put a relay in there so that I would switch the output of the, uh, the VFO. On receive, the, uh, the, the VFO energy would go to the um, local oscillator input on the 602 chip giving us a direct conversion receiver. And then on transmit, this little relay would take the output of the VFO and send it to the balanced modulator, which is a standard two-diode uh, trifiller toroidal uh, inductor arrangement, very standard two-diode balanced modulator. And um, I figured that would work out just fine. The first few contacts I made with this thing, guys were telling me, oh man, you're off frequency, you're off frequency. And at first I just sort of discounted that as the um, kind of familiar whining of guys who are used to only working Yesus and ICOMs and Kenwoods in which the um, glowing numerals provide really, really accurate readout and rock solid stability. But then I began to suspect that there was something more to it. So I I took a look and I, I pulled out the uh, the frequency counter, the one that I had fixed with the uh, the part that uh, Tony Fishpool sent me, the uh, the one that I ch I soldered the chip in upside down and backwards. You guys remember the sad story, but it all worked out okay because the um, the frequency counter is now counting, and I used it. I put the frequency counter on the um, the VFO and watched what happened when I switched from transmit to receive and sure enough it was shifting you know significantly you know four or five six hundred hertz too much so I tried to figure out what was going on and I realized that the load you know the load that, it, that, that the VFO was was receiving from the 602 chip I think probably was in the 1500 ohm range if I recall and then the uh, the input now the load that the uh, two diode balanced modulator was presenting is in the 50 ohm range, so I'm I'm thinking that it's the the difference in load that's that's accounting that's ex, that that is uh, causing this frequency shift from transmit to receive, and um, you know there's a lot of ways you can you could fix that. I went to a real simple way of fixing it, and I just I took an alligator clip, and I just clipped it across the um, the the little uh, terminals on the relay, and I arranged it so that the 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 VFO is connected to the any to both the NE602 chip and the balanced modulator in both transmit and receive. This stabilizes the load, and I noticed that uh, both the balanced modulator and the uh, the 602 chip work just fine. In essence, there's no more shifting, there's no more switching of the VFO output, and it. It uh, there is no um, noticeable on the on the frequency counter no noticeable change in frequency when I go from transmit to receive. Uh, it's not a an elegant solution. I'd like to do a little bit more work on it, but um, anyway, we're um, that's what where we are right now. 
I've done this before with direct conversion receivers and had the VFO running both into the receiver and the transmitter all the time, and it works out. It works out okay. Let's see what else. Oh yeah, one other problem that I had with this um, with the receiver, and it's still there. You know, I'm I'm in a very intense RF atmosphere environment here in uh, in Northern Virginia, uh, where it's a densely populated area with lots of electronics around, and one of the problems you guys will recall that I had and you probably have actually heard this station uh, <laughs> or, or one of the other stations that transmit from the tower. It's, it's RFI. We have uh, within, I guess, within about uh, two, three, maybe four kilometers of our house, a, uh, a really big um, FM broadcast uh, transmission tower. One of the stations is uh, Washington, D.C.'s um, uh, FM 100.3 rock and roll classic rock station you'll recall that i i uh, was tracking it down and i was able to identify the source of the irfi when the station went to uh peter frampton's do you feel like we do which goes on for <laughs> a long long time anyway um i uh sometimes on the dc receiver i can hear a little bit of the uh, the, the station coming through i know how to fix it and I just have to go in there and do it. What happened is I, the, uh, the transmitter has a, a low-pass filter, of course, because I know that Steve Smith is watching from out there in California and will pounce and uh, will be tempted to turn me into the feds if I admit to running a transmitter without the requisite low-pass filter. The low-pass filter is there, Steve. I, I, I'm not kidding. It really is. Uh, but the problem is, I the way I set it up is it's only there on transmit, and there's no re reason why I can't just rearrange it so that on receive the um, the energy from the antenna goes through the low pass filter before reaching the uh, the 602 chip. So I just need to go in there and, and do a little bit of, of work on that, and uh, and I will. The other thing that was kind of cool um, about this this rig is I uh, got to make use of of a of a kind of cable that I hadn't yeah um, Belden Belden 1671A you remember I talked about the evils of RG174 Murphy's whiskers and all that well uh, a listener wrote in and gave us gave us a good source for Belden 1671A and I bought about 10 feet of it and so I used that cable this is this is the little miniature coax it's got the shield on the outside there's no plastic or uh, insulating cover and the insulation is Teflon. I, I used it. It is a, it is a bit tricky to get the um, get the um, the, um, the braid off of it, but there's no problem with Murphy's uh, whiskers, and I, I really liked it. I could see that it, in some applications where you want some more flexibility, you'd, you'd want to have some RG174 around, but uh, in most cases, in order to avoid the uh, problems caused by the dreaded uh, Murphy's whiskers. The, uh, the little shards of little pieces of, uh, of coax braid that can fall out and cause shorts in your equipment and all kinds of other trouble. Anyway, uh, we, uh, I, I think there's a, a place for the Belden 1671A and the uh, RG174. So I use that RG174 in the final phase of the kick panel 75 meter DSB rig project. And, uh, it, uh, it proved to be very useful. I really like that stuff. And, uh, Yay, three cheers for Belden 1671A. Um, all right, with that project uh, kind of, sort of, mostly completed, 
uh, I now, I, I've kind of told myself that I'm going to follow a discipline here, that when I finish a project, I move to a phase where I work on the workbench and the test gear to try to upgrade it a little bit. And I want to alternate between projects and then sort of a kind of a, a maintenance of the maintenance uh, phase. And that's where I am now. I, I went and built uh, yesterday a, a special shelf for the uh, Tech 465 uh, scope. It had been kind of sitting precariously on the uh, on the workbench shelf, and it made me nervous because it's such a, a precious piece of equipment. So I just got out the saw and a couple pieces of wood, and I built a really impressive, simple little shelf for it. The uh, the, the tech scope is now situated perfectly at the uh, at the very center of the workbench where it should be, and uh, it's no longer in danger of, of tipping over. It looks uh, looks really cool there, and I. Uh, I'm really enjoying this scope. Thanks again to the anonymous benefactor, sort of the millionaire, uh, the, the, the anonymous millionaire benefactor. He's not a millionaire, but it's like that TV show, The Millionaire. Uh, he knows who he is, and uh, thanks a lot for the uh, for the scope. Um, let's see. I, I also want to work a little bit more on the, the logarithmic power meter, and uh, I want to make sure that I can put that to better use here perhaps combine it with the uh, the wave meter that I brought back from London to give myself a better ability to uh, to see how much harmonic energy is being put out to test those low-pass filters that Steve Smith has been uh, been recommending so earnestly to see if they're actually giving the desired degree of, uh, of attenuation. We'll work on that a little bit. I need a better I need some better signal generating capability here. My signal generator is, get this guys, a Heathkit SG6. Yuck. Not good enough. We need better. Um, I might upgrade it, update it, solid state it, get rid of those tubes, and uh, make use of the, the tune circuits and the, and the, the socketry, as uh, George Dobbs would put it, the case, the panel, and all that. But uh, get rid of the tubes and put some... Uh, solid-state stuff in there, bring it into the modern era. I don't know. What do you guys think? Um, before we go to the uh, the FDIM portion of uh, this week's program, um, I want to tell you about Billy's computer build project, a big success. He, the kid has managed to get his own computer going, mostly, almost all of it, his own work. I occasionally provided some technical advice, but he, he did it all. And thanks to all those who sent gear, info, and encouragement, especially Bob, W8SX, Alan, WA9IRS, Woody, KF4TQJ, Corey, WA3UVV, Stephen, and Jorge, for all, all who sent, uh, sent gear, advice, equipment, websites. It was really, uh, very much a team effort. I want to tell you the story. Woody's, uh, uh, USB sound card really, helped us kind of finish the project. We Billy got it all done. It was all ready to go, and uh, everything was working. We were on the Internet. It was fast. Uh, everything was working fine. But we couldn't get sound, no sound. And I don't know why. I still don't know why. Somehow the uh, the um, we weren't detecting the onboard sound card on the motherboard, and I don't know why. Still don't know why, but... One of the obvious solutions was to get a sound card and stick it in one of the PCI or PCI Express uh, sockets and see if we could get that one detected. 
but we just hadn't made it to the computer store. We hadn't ordered one, and Billy was facing another weekend of uh, computing without sound, which these days is, you know, pretty weak. So uh, I was just thinking what to do, what to do, what to do. And then I remembered early in 2011, Woody, a KF4 TQJ, had sent me this little thumb drive thing. It's it's half the size of a thumb drive. It's got a USB socket on one side and it's got a mic connector and a uh, headphone connector on the other. And Woody, in his very prophetic email, said, Bill, I don't know if it's going to help you now, but it's the kind of thing that might get you out of a jam in the future. In the future. So just stick it away in your junk box in case you ever need it. And somehow last night those words came back to me and I, I, I said, let me, let me see. And I dug around and, and there it was. There was that little, little thumb drive that, um, that USB sound card that Woody had sent to me. And I went upstairs to Billy's room where he was, he was sitting there in silence, <laughs> computing. And I said, try this. And he kind of raised an eyebrow and he said, that thing is going to fix it. And I said, Give it a shot. Let's see what happens. So he stuck it into the USB drive. And man, all of a sudden, it was clear that the computer was detecting a sound card where before it had detected no sound card. He stuck his headphones into that mic jack. And man, the game he was playing, all of a sudden, sound is pouring out. Again, I felt like a wizard, a technical wizard. But the real wizard was uh, was Woody and Alan and Bob, and, uh, and Stephen, and Jorge, Corey, and all those guys who'd sent advice and equipment and gear. So thanks to all who helped uh, with Billy's computer build project, a big success. Uh, thanks again, guys. Oh, yeah, one thing I want to clarify, and this is something that uh, Steve Smith and I have been discussing. Steve put me on the right track. I made a mistake uh, during the last episode of Solder Smoke. I was talking about the... Um, historical significance of the uh, combination of a 9 megahertz IF frequency or 9 megahertz filter with a uh, 5 megahertz uh, second oscillator or local oscillator in an SSB transmitter. And I mistakenly said that this combination, this particular combination, was responsible for the convention that we have today whereby uh, 10 megahertz and above USB and I think 10 megahertz and below LSB or below 10 megahertz LSB. Anyway, you know, 80 and 40 LSB, the higher frequencies USB. Um, anyway, uh, this was uh, uh, sort of correct, but not quite. And uh, I'll explain why. Uh, Steve immediately, uh, what I was saying what I read, what I thought I read, and I didn't actually read it, but what I thought I read, what I misread from the 2006 AWRL handbook was that if you have a 9 megahertz IF followed by uh, a mixer with a 5 megahertz local oscillator feeding into it, you will have the opportunity to produce signals on the uh, 20 meter band and on the 75 meter band. And if you have the 20 meter signal on upper side band, through the magic of sideband inversion, um, you will have the 75 meter signal on lower sideband. It sounds good, 
you will have signals on 75 and 20 meters, but this uh, magical sideband inversion will not take place, I'm sad to report. There is a, a version of this, and I think this is why this has become something of an urban legend in, in ham radio. Here's the deal. You can get this magical, well, not magical, but very convenient sideband inversion if you have the filter at 5 megahertz and the oscillator, the second oscillator, at 9 megahertz. In that case, you'll get, coming out of the filter, very conveniently, a 20 meter signal. And if you set it up originally for that to be upper sideband, you'll also have a, a 75 meter signal coming out of the mixer. You can select either one by a post mixer filter. And in that case, the 75 meter signal will be on lower sideband. And this may be, I think, the origin of the, of the, um, of the convention because, uh, using some surplus gear, apparently guys were using surplus gear that had a uh, 5 megahertz IF with a VFO working around 9 megahertz and that's where you got this um, upper sideband on 20 lower sideband on 75 anyway thanks to Steve Smith for keeping us on the uh, on the straight and narrow and keeping our ham radio history uh, correct here on on solder smoke thanks Steve I hope I got that right <laughs> this time all right, guys, so it's uh, early June, and we still have to report on four days in May. Fortunately, our uh, correspondent, Bob Crane, W8SX, was on the scene with his recorder, and he got us, as he always does, a bunch of really good interviews, and we're going to start presenting them right now. I haven't listened to, I haven't listened to them yet myself, so I'm, uh, I'm going to be listening right along with you. Well, sort of. I listen first, then you guys listen later. But you know how it is. Here we go. Now, hi, I'm Craig Johnson, AA0ZZ. And uh, my talk today was about uh, various methods of experimenting, uh, different projects that people get into. And uh, talked about some of the projects that I've done, I guess, through the last several years. Uh, the pickle board that I've done and uh, some of the daughter cards that go along with that, the direct digital synthesis and so on. And then also uh, the new uh, SI570 daughter card and control board that I've done quite recently in the software that goes along with it. So a couple of a couple of methods of making uh, signal generators, I guess, is the main way of looking at it. And I can take all these cards and do what with them? Uh, make a signal generator basically and then you build it into a standalone board and you can run a rig with it. You can make a transmitter, full transmitter or receiver out of it. Uh, there are a lot of people all over that are making full rigs and talking to people all over with them. So this is a basic building block. It's not the whole rig but it's the tuner for it. Ah, so this is the digital component. The digital component. So you can tune it uh, 0 to 30 megahertz or whatever on the DDS and about 3.5 megahertz to 30 megahertz on the SI570 when you run it through a divide by four. So, so if I wanted to know more about this, do you have a website? Uh, yeah, my, my website uh, certainly is a pointer for it. It's all sold through Kanga US, by the way, uh, www.kangaus.com. But my website is cbjohn.com slash my call, AA0ZZ. So that's where uh, I have all these things posted and pictures and, and links and everything like that. And I actually have a couple of uh, 
of uh, Yahoo groups also that I support. I have one for the Pickle group, one for the DDS VFO, and one for the SI-570 called the Programmable PLL VFO, so PPLL-VFO. So three different websites that I support, uh, support these things. So people share ideas and, and we talk about what's going on uh, with the, and try to help them if they want to make a software modification or everything, I'll try to help them figure out how to do it. Marvelous, that must so. keep you busy. <laughs> very, <laughs> yes, it sure does. So. Okay, well, thank you very much. You bet. We got a close talk there. Yes, you're on Okay, my name is Ray Anderson, K8RDJ, and I'm at Four Days in May at the banquet, and I just won a Bagelli uh, Leo Key. And uh, I'm so excited about this. I never thought I had a chance at this. Uh, I know I couldn't have afforded to buy one otherwise, and I'm going to have a lot of fun with this. So. Um, so what's it feel like to win? <laughs> Feels great. <laughs> a lot great. better than losing. <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, we're gonna have a lot of fun with it. I suppose it does almost everything except it doesn't fix your spelling, right? You're right. I, I still have <laughs> spelling errors with it. <laughs> yeah, my name is uh, Jim Duffy, KK6MC. Uh, people also know me as uh, Dr. Megacycle. Uh, this is uh, Thursday night after the uh, seminars from uh, Four Day in May. I talked about uh, VHF, UHF operating for the uh, beginning QRP and uh, went through some topics about uh, propagation and rigs and uh, showed a couple of antennas that I put together for a portable operation. And uh, I'm not sure what else you want to know. <laughs> well, at least the antennas for UHF, VHF are smaller than the 40 meter guys, right? Oh yeah, right. Uh, in fact, uh, the first slide I show is uh, is my rover on a, a nice uh, ridge in uh, New Mexico, and it's got a two-element uh, uh, six-meter beam at 15 feet and a six-element two-meter beam at about 12 feet. And of course, that's that's equivalent to uh, you know having a two-element 40 beam at 90 feet and a <laughs> six-element 20-meter uh, beam at 120 feet, so uh, everybody has that advantage, but uh, you need to think of it in terms of what you're getting at lower frequencies to get the game. How, how's that work on the magic band, or six meters? Uh, six meters, it works very well. I use a, uh, uh, now on the on six meters, I use a stress moxin that uh, PAR puts together, and uh, I drive with it, uh, or my wife drives with it, and uh, it's uh, a big step up from a loop. Uh, uh, loops are nice for omnidirectional work, but uh, once you've uh, used a, a small Yagi or a Moxon, uh, you don't want to go back to a loop. It makes a big difference when the band's opening and closing or for the real short openings. Marvelous. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. I'm Ward Silver. I'm N0AX. Um, I'm an author for QST. I guess I'm a contributing editor for the ARL. I'm the lead editor of the handbook and the antenna book and uh, the three licensing manuals, but uh, every month I write hands-on radio in QST, and I've been doing that for coming up on 10 years now. We started out, uh, we thought we'd do a couple of columns and see how it worked out, and one thing led to another, and um, it's become a very popular column, and we're up to experiment 114 is now on the stands, and um, 120 will be coming up here pretty soon and it'll be time for another compendium, uh, volume two and all that. The response has been excellent. Uh, people really enjoy it. They send me ideas that, and that provokes more columns. We started out with just some simple circuit 
uh, diagram type experiments, a common emitter amplifier was number one. And all of that came from uh, some Seattle University engineering labs that I was teaching and we thought we could adapt them to amateur radio electronics. And so that's filled a, a need for many people. And uh, I continue to get ideas both from the literature and from correspondence with readers and they give me more ideas than I can possibly uh, accommodate. So my challenge is to pick topics out of that pile that I can address in two pages or in a couple of different columns. And I branched out into tools and techniques and we've done some columns on circuit simulation with LT Spice, a uh, little of easyneck.com and we had a printed circuit board layout column. So a uh, little bit of everything and uh, some antennas and uh, uh, there's just a never-ending uh, set of uh, questions about amateur radio and electronics and antennas and all the different things that make up the hobby. So as long as there are questions, there will probably be a hands-on radio column. And so that's, that's where it comes from. Do you anticipate moving on, say, to a more complex project, such as building a small transceiver, for example? Probably... Um, Probably not. My, there are a lot of radio designers out there who are very good at what they do, and there's a lot of glue between the various circuits to making a radio, uh, making a functional system out of these parts. My interest uh, is basically in explaining how the individual little pieces and functions work so that people can then build something more complex out of the pieces and parts by understanding the fundamentals. Uh, that said, um, I may uh, branch out into uh, collections of circuits that are working together in some way, but with a two-page format it's very difficult to do ver things that are very complicated and so I prefer to stay with the fundamentals. Every once in a while I'll write a longer article like uh, the one called About FM, where it explains how FM works and where the equations come from and, and why the sidebands look the way they do and, and all that sort of stuff. That takes several pages. But um, as far as hands-on radio goes, we'll, there are plenty of little short topics to address, and, and that's what we'll be doing for the foreseeable future. Great. Thank you. Oh, okay. <clears throat> You're on the air. Okay. I'm Kay Craigie, N3KN. I'm the president of the American Radio Relay League, the National Association for Amateur Radio, and we're here at the Hamvention with an ARRL Expo display that shows folks at the Hamvention what the ARRL does, lets them talk to people who write the columns in QST, see what kinds of services and programs we have that are of interest to them, and also do good things for amateur radio. Oh, that's great. How long have you been president? I've been president since 2010. Huh, and do you have a re-election campaign and all that going? Well, actually, I was re-elected in January of 2012 for another two-year term. Okay. So uh, we'll see what the Board of Directors wants to do uh, in two years from now. But I'm having a good time, and I have a great board and a great set of officers to work with. Great. How long have you been a ham? I've been a ham for a little over 29 years, and I had a really cool experience today at the Hamvention. I had gotten an email quite a few months ago from a fella who asked if I was the Kay Craigie whom he had worked back in 1983 when he was on Ascension Island. And I said, yes, that, that would be me. 
and I still had his QSL card and he had my old QSL card from three or four call signs and several addresses ago. So we got together on 40 meters and had a conversation again from his uh, home place here in Ohio. And we said, hey, let's get together at the Hamvention since he lives in the Dayton area. And we met this morning. We exchanged our recent QSL cards. We took a photograph. And, you know, where else but an amateur radio would you meet somebody face-to-face -face whom you first encounter on the air uh, between Pennsylvania and the Ascension Island um, uh, 29 years ago? I was so new. I had been licensed for two months at that point. Wow. And Ascension Island was my first really, oh my gosh, kind of DX <laughs> contact. And uh, I got into ham radio to work DX, and so that was really, really exciting. And it, it's so cool finally to meet the person who gave me that contact all those years Were ago. Were you a novice then? I was not. I was a novice for about a week. But in those days, when you took your novice test, it had to be sent back to the FCC office in Gettysburg. They marked the test. So it was taking, in those days, about six weeks for you to find out if you passed and for them to send you your license. So I took that six weeks, and I got what was then the Tech General Theory Manual, and I practiced the code with my tapes. And so by the time the novice license came in the mail, I thought I was ready to go to see if I could pass uh, the technician and general class tests. And I went to the FCC office, and lo and behold, I passed. So my, uh, my first contacts on the air were actually as a general. And, um, and so uh, I, I was just briefly a novice. <laughs> oh, I didn't have that experience. I had to be a novice for a long time. Mm -hmm. That was great. So. Would you come every year to the Hamvention? Just about. My first Dayton Hamvention was 20 years ago, in 1992, and I've missed twice in the intervening wow. years. Uh, once voluntarily, which I then hated myself for because I was very sorry when everybody else was going to Dayton and I wasn't, and once because of a family health emergency that I couldn't come. But other than that, I've been here every year, and I love it. This is the show. There are some absolutely wonderful amateur radio conventions in the United States. I've had the fun of being at a lot of them. But uh, Dayton is really something extraordinary and special. And uh, now that we can do the ARRL Expo and really show people what the league is doing and, um, and how we can help ham radio, it makes it even more interesting for us to come. And this year's especially nice year. This is the second year in a row where we had sun most of the time. Oh, you know, I was wondering if I had slipped into a parallel universe because sometimes the weather isn't very nice and it's rainy and it's cold and. And this year it is absolutely gorgeous. And uh, you know, whoever arranged this weather, boy, you need to keep them on the staff uh, of the Hamvention here because it's tremendous. Well, this is great. Well, thank you very much for your views. Thank you very much. And uh, we do have a national convention this year for ARRL at Pacificon in Santa Clara, California in October. And we'll be taking the ARRL Expo there. So anybody who could not make it to Dayton, we hope they'll come and see us in Santa Clara. And, um, and I'm sure that the, uh, the folks at Pacificon put on a super convention as well. So we're looking forward to visiting with them out there in October. Thanks a lot. Hope you have Thank a good you. hamvention. 72 or 73. Thank you. Hey, hi, I'm Jason Mildrum, NT7S. And uh, my talk at FDIM was to talk about open source and freeware software and how you can uh, apply that to your own homebrewing efforts. Uh, I kind of did an overview of all of the different uh, software tools that are available and also some different open source hardware tools, uh, an open source QRP kit, and um, also talked about PCB manufacturing as well. 
and how you can apply that to your own efforts in home brewing. Great. Are many people doing that these days? Uh, yeah, I think more and more people are. And I wanted to give the, the speech so that I could um, make more people aware of it because I, I think that um, we don't see a lot of crossover between um, some of the people in the maker community, which is where a lot of this information came from. Um, we don't see that crossover so much into ham reading. I think um, more cross-pollination would be great. So that was my goal for this talk. That would be wonderful. How about the 3D printing for enclosures? <laughs> yeah, that um, that's something that I don't know a lot about yet, unfortunately. I wanted to mention that because I think it has great potential. Um, and it's an area where we're just really seeing an explosion of uh, 3D printers that are uh, affordable for the average home brewer. Um, if you follow any of the, the people in the maker community, uh, you'll see a lot of that uh, being discussed right now. And there's um, a lot of new models of 3D printers coming out. Um, it is something I'd like to explore because the idea of being able to draw a CAD, uh, uh, draw an enclosure in a CAD and print it out on demand, I think would uh, be very helpful for you know, the home brewer because um, I know that we're always looking for uh, the perfect enclosure and we can't really find it or the enclosures are very expensive or we have to order it and it's out of stock and the various problems like that and so I just think that's one area that, that bears looking at in the future. Wonderful. Are you having a good time? I'm having an excellent time. It's been great to, to meet all these people here. Uh, this is only my second year at 40s in May. Uh, my first was two years ago and uh, it's been a blast to, to meet all the QRPers and talk to them. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hi Bill. This is Grayson. Uh, Grayson Evans here, uh, TA2ZGE, and uh, my talk uh, at the uh, uh, QRP event here was uh, Hollow State Home Brewing. Now, the first thing I straightened out during this uh, presentation was that uh, I, I've decided to change from now on the nomenclature for uh, what we call vacuum tubes. Uh, a tube is like a hollow tube and a valve, uh, even for the Brits, is something you turn water on and off. From now on, tubes are to be properly addressed as thermotrons, the transistor killer. So my talk was about uh, a, a little bit of background on uh, why use them. Uh, first, they're, um, they're uh, gorgeous. They look cool, absolutely cool. Uh, greatest examples of industrial art we have uh, left over from that period of time. Uh, they are very rugged, electrically rugged. They'll outperform solid-state devices in most RF applications. Uh, they are uh, a new old niche. Uh, people that work on tubes nowadays are definitely cool. Uh, they are... Uh, uh, EMP proof, electrostatic discharge proof, and uh, if you need another reason, they're, um, they build character. I mean, high voltage, uh, hot plates, burning filaments, uh, what else you need? They smell good. They smell good. Oh, I forgot that one. <clears throat> and this is one you know if you uh, fire up an old boat anchor tube radio and you open the top uh, and you smell inside. Yeah, you know right away what, uh, what you're missing. So I gave a little background on the, uh, the technical, I called it the five-minute tube university, five-minute thermotron university, excuse me. Uh, it was uh, all about uh, triodes, tetrodes, pentodes, uh, hexodes, heptodes, 
all the way up to no nodes. That's a uh, tube with uh, seven grids. Uh, then I got into uh, tube homebrewing, like test equipment you might need. You're going to need a high voltage power supply. You can easily build one yourself. Get some old uh, heaths off the internet. Uh, you can uh, build your own. It's fun to play with lethal voltages. Uh, lots, again, builds more of that character. Uh, a tube tester. Uh, there are a couple of different types and varieties, and I gave people pointers on where to find them here at the show, which they did, because when I got there, they were all gone. Uh, let's see. Uh, examples of great homebrewing techniques. Uh, there's a guy's website. I can't remember. the. His name is Jeff Duntiman, but I don't remember his call. He's got a great website. Uh... He's a genius with uh, two projects. And a guy that you have mentioned on your show a couple of times, uh, Steve. I think it's KD8. Boy, I don't remember. He's had a bunch of articles. He does some of the greatest tube homebrew work I've ever seen. Just a whiz at this sort of thing. Uh, showed some of my projects, which are pretty modest. Uh, some... Uh, Manhattan-style pads I've been making for uh, seven and nine-pin tubes. Uh, I don't have a website to show them, but I hope to get one up this summer. Uh, what else did I cover? Let's see. Um, some QRP transmitter, tube transmitter projects, some tube receiver projects that look pretty good. And I told people, you know, where to get further info, like uh, uh, even solder smoke. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, electric radio, tube collector magazine, back issues of QST. And uh, hopefully I got a book coming out this summer called Hollow State Homebrewing. And that was it. Very good. And they're, still, go. they're still being made. And uh, two, oh yeah, I forgot to mention. Uh, one of the myths, a couple of myths, I forgot. Uh, that tubes aren't being made anymore, but in fact, uh, there are six to eight manufacturers in the U.S., 25 worldwide. Most of the major tubes, particularly audio tubes, are still being made. Uh, let's see, what's another myth? They're expensive. Eh, they're not too bad nowadays. Tube audio guys have driven up the price on a lot of the uh, audio-related tubes. Uh, but here at uh, Dayton, geez, I got boxes of tubes for nothing. So uh, this is my annual supply here. i got to box them up and take them back to Turkey. And what else? That's pretty much it. That's it. Pretty much it. Okay. It was great. I had a wonderful time, and uh, uh, I hope more people will get interested in vacuum tubes. We're certainly trying. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, this is Ed Hare, W1RFI, and I'm here at the Four Days in May event in Dayton, and I've just gotten out of the uh, QRP banquet where I had the great delight of sitting with some of the Flying Pigs uh, QRP club members. Now, this is a, a rather, uh, well, enthusiastic group that uh, ended up doing lots of yelling, cheering, screaming, and howling throughout the entire event. Uh, I was, of course, doing my best to keep them calm and quiet, but others who looked at this said, no, Ed, I think you're just egging them on. <laughs> and the rules for joining the Flying Pigs consist of? Well, there are no rules. It's just join the pigs and have fun. There's no rules. There's no dues. The whole idea is for them to get together and have fun getting on the air and 
and doing those sorts of things. So. And participating in um, something for the bacon. Of, uh, well, they have the bacon bits. That's their, oh, bacon, uh, their yeah. online newsletter. But uh, they'll occasionally get together in the Cincinnati area. In fact, the Flying Pigs is a Cincinnati, Cincinnati area mascot. So um, that's where the name came from. And, you know, I was here one year, and this was the most enthusiastic group of people I think I'd ever seen. And they dragged me over kicking and screaming to get my photo taken. And uh, after that, I realized that I would like to become a pig. So I signed up, and they gave me what they thought would be a vanity number. They said, well, Ed's very special because he works at ARRL headquarters. So let's give him number 400 because we'll never get up that high. And I think they just issued something over number 3,000. So it's a pretty popular group. <laughs> and a lot of fun. And a lot of fun. I, I had fun here all night. In fact, I'm a little hoarse from all that yelling and screaming I was doing to try to stop them from yelling and screaming. Oh, good. <laughs> they have to have someone to calm them down. Yes. Uh, others have just accused me of egging them on, but I, I will absolutely insist that that's not true. Deny it all. Absolutely. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Good for you. Good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Hi, I'm Scotty Cowling, WA2DFI. And I talked on Software Defined Radio and Hermes, the Open HPSDR project, and some new bores that were coming down the line that are going to be available soon. Software Defined Radio type boards. And what kind of uh, radio will I have if I uh, invest in this? Um, you'll have a radio that you can do things that you can't do with the standard radio, like uh, things like a built in pan adapter. Um, you can QSY or tune in a new station with a mouse click. Um, you have a very good dynamic range, very clean sounding audio because the signals are not fed through crystal filters which in introduce phase distortion and ringing. So you get very narrow filters, very steep skirts without having the problems associated with crystal filters and not the expensive crystal filters either. And um, they can do CW on this, low power? Yes, in fact the Hermes is inherently a half watt transmitter. Uh -huh. And if so, I want to boost that up, can I do that too? You can do that. You, there's a 20-watt amplifier that's going to be available uh, in the next couple of months, and they're working on a 100-watt amplifier. So you have Whoa. two uh, options there. Well, I have to have a computer to do this, right? Yes, you do. Okay. Is no it, getting around that. Okay. Is that a pretty fancy computer or is that a simple computer? Um, no, it, it, it depends because the, the higher-powered computers can, can decode wider bandwidths. So if you want to do a 200 kilohertz slice on your pan adapter. You need a little bit more computer, but really these days you don't need much. Uh, probably your average netbook is not enough, but a, uh, a Pentium class uh, 1.8 gigahertz type laptop would be fine. And I, I like to joke that any SDR will run on a computer, a desktop computer that you can probably buy in the flea market for $50 because it doesn't really require a lot these days. And that the Two gigahertz or so Pentium class machines have been out a lot of years, and there's lots of them around. So that's about what you need. Okay, and I don't need dual core or quad core. Or dual core is better, but you don't need the hex core, quad core, the big, uh, you know, i7, the fancy machines. And I know uh, the uh, I got a quad core AMD, I believe, on like a place like Tiger Direct, for with an unbelievable features, and it was two hundred ninety nine dollars. So, and the, the thing that you can do is, you, you, since you can run these under Linux also, you can buy a computer without an operating system, and you can save probably $50 to $100 off of what a computer would cost if you had Windows 7 on it. And you can run Linux, which is free. Very nice operating system. 
Yeah, very nice operating system. And so the whole package is going to cost me thousand dollars. It's it's like saying how much is a radio. It's like you can buy soft rock class ones that are a few hundred dollars. You can buy the new Flex 6000 or 6700 they just introduced. That's seven thousand dollars. And so there's the range. Now the what the ones I talked about they range on the low end from a few hundred dollars and these are going to be more as a receiver only. If you want a full transceiver, Hermes is about $900. That's the half watt transceiver. If you want a full radio, you're talking one to $2,000 typically. And do I assemble this myself or do I actually do the soldering? There's no soldering. On, on, well, I should take that back. For the things like Hermes, there's no soldering because it's all surface mount and it's really too difficult to, to, for the homeowner to solder, I should say, because the problem is that some of the ICs require special equipment to solder down because they have to be soldered down to the board on pads that are underneath the IC, which is, you need like a hot air machine to do this and most hams don't have that. However, some of the kits that Tapper offers, like for instance the 20 watt power amplifier, uh, they have a uh, GPS uh, input device, it's basically it conditions a GPS DO so you can lock your receiver frequency to a GPS frequency standard. Those two boards are kits. The power supply module is a kit, the backplane is a kit, so yes, if you want to do HPSTR, you, you'll have to solder, but we reserve the hard stuff to the manufacturer that makes them, that solders all the parts down. The relatively easy stuff is, if, if you can handle through-hole parts and if you've got a good magnifier, you can do these through-hole parts, because any ones that we have you assemble by hand, we use the larger parts, so it's easier to assemble. Okay. Sounds like a pretty neat project. Thanks, I think so. And this will all be ready by the fall, say? Well, HPSDR is available right now, and you can order all the parts, all the pieces from tapper.org. Wonderful. So. Great. Are you having I, a good time here? I'm having a good time, yes. Great. It's my first time here, and it's fun. Great. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. No. My name is uh, Edward Brenizer. The call is WA3WSJ, and uh, I was here at four days in May, presenting a uh, presentation on, on uh, operating pedestrian mobile. Uh, a lot of guys have heard of it. Not too many know that much about it, really. And few have tried it. And I always say, if it were easy, we wouldn't do it. And uh, it seems like it was well, uh, the presentation was well, uh, uh, they, they really liked it. It was, and... Uh, I'm having a lot of fun here at four days in May. So what's it take to become, to do um, pedestrian mobile? And do you do sideband or CW or what? Okay, to, to do pedestrian mobile, <coughs> it doesn't take a whole lot. You need to uh, get a, some type of a, what we call an HF pack. Uh, and that is if you're gonna operate HF. You, uh, I have what they call an Alice frame. It's a Army surplus aluminum fr uh, frame. You can buy them used for 10, 15 bucks. I have an ICOM 703 mounted on it. And uh, I use a, a, buddy pole, a buddy stick from Buddy Pole as an antenna. So I can tune just about a lot of uh, 10, t uh, 20, 30, 40, 6 meters, and 17 meters, just a lot of bands. I operate mainly, though, CW. The reason why I operate CW Pedestrian Mobile on average, between CW and sideband, 
there's a kick or a gain, as we call it, anywhere from 13 to 15 dB. So they may not hear you on sideband, but 90% of the time they're going to hear you on CW. Have you ever done it from a place like a beach or anything like that or a mountaintop? Well, I've operated from uh, Cape Antelope State Park. It's a state park in Delaware on the beach. I've operated uh, in the SOTA, that summits on the air program, and numerous mountaintops. And usually if you operate from a SOTA summit, uh, someone, what they do is they post you on a reflector, and you usually get a pileup on you right away. So if you go out pedestrian mobile, uh, most of the time uh, you have a pileup on you because uh, pedestrian mobile operators are, it's sort of a rare thing. Okay. And have you uh, uh, arranged your vacations around this or any kind of holidays or that sort of thing? What I do is every year, uh, beginning of August, either the first or second week, there's an organization called the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society. And what they do is guys go out and they put lighthouses on the air. And down in Lewis, Delaware, there's the Overfalls Lightship and about two or three other lighthouses. So what I do is I walk around Pedestrian Mobile, put the light ship on the air, put the lighthouses on the air, operate from the beach, uh, and so forth. Uh, I usually don't change the family vacations, but uh, since I'm retired now, I can uh, do just about what I want when I want. Sounds like great fun. <laughs> it is. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> No, you can record. No, hello, Bill. Ciao, Bill. Come stai? Uh, come per Dave prima, rinnovo l'invito che tu eh, nel tuo prossimo viaggio verso l'Italia venga a trovarmi nella mia, si chiama officina in italiano, factory, officina. All right, wow, fantastic. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Bob. W8SX and to all those who agreed to speak into his microphone. Really uh, inspiring. <laughs> Makes me want to go to Dayton <laughs> maybe next year. Thanks a lot, Bob. Solder Smoke Mailbag. Ooh, that's awesome. All right, not much time for the mailbag today. I just wanted to tell you guys about two pieces of mail that I've received. Uh, one from Steve Smith uh, squaring me away on a on an error that I uh, made during uh, the last episode of Solder Smoke. I, I talked about the um, supposedly magical properties of the 9 megahertz filter followed by a 5 megahertz second mixer in an SSB transmitter. And I got it wrong. And in do doing that, I might have made it sound like the ARRL handbook in 2006 got it wrong. Not the case. Uh, this was um, my error. I read the uh, handbook kind of quickly and uh, contributed inadvertently to the uh, reinforcement of a ham radio urban legend. And the urban legend is this. It says that if you use a, in an SSB transmitter, if you use a filter at 9 megahertz and then follow it, in other words, if you produce your SSB signal at 9 megahertz, say USB at 9 megahertz, and then you use 
a converter with the oscillator running at 5 megahertz, you'll get an output at 20 meters and an output at 75 meters. And then with the appropriate post-mixer filtering, you can have your transmitter go out on 20 meters or on 75 meters. Okay, so far so good. Here's where the trouble begins. I reported that um, when you do this, the 20 meter signal will remain, of course, on upper sideband, but the 75 meter signal, voila, will be on lower sideband. And this happy property accounts for the fact that we use lower sideband on 75 and 40 and upper sideband on 20 meters and above. Not true. <laughs> Close, but no cigar. Um, when you, if you want to map this out, it's real easy to do. You just just draw yourself a little picture. Imagine the uh, in the uh, carrier oscillator. Imagine that you have your um, nine megahertz uh, signal coming in, and uh, you're mixing it with uh, two tones: one at one kc, the other at two kc. And uh, if you follow that through, and then do your um, you know, 9 megahertz filter with a 5 megahertz oscillator VFO, you will discover that you do indeed get a 20 meter signal and a 75 meter signal, but both of them will be on upper sideband. Now, here's the thing. There's an element of truth to it. There's a bit of truthiness in this. <laughs> if you switch it around a bit, if you have the filter at 5 megahertz and the oscillator at 9 megahertz, you will again get outputs at 20 and 75 meters, and one of them will be on upper sideband, the other will be on lower sideband. And this may account for the, uh, the convention whereby we use upper sideband on the upper bands and lower sideband on the lower bands. It may have been that people were using command sets and, and other surplus gear that had uh, filters at 5 megahertz and or VFOs at 9 megahertz. Anyway, that's the arrangement that they use, and if you do that, you'll uh, you'll get this kind of output. In any case, I'm going to use the 9 megahertz filter that Steve Smith sent me, and I'm going to use it when I build my BIDX, and it's going to be a, a BIDX 7520 with upper sideband on 20 meters and... <laughs> And upper sideband on 75, unless I change the, the, the crystal way back down there at the carrier oscillator. I hope I got that right, Steve Smith. And I promise there will be a low-pass filter after the uh, power amplifier. Um, another piece of mail I just wanted to share with you. I got I, I, uh, uh, Tim Walford, G3PCJ, always sends me his um, magnificent... Uh, newsletter for the uh, Constructors Club, construction club that they have out there in the West Country in England, and it's called Hot Iron, and I've commented on how occasionally people raise an eyebrow when they see me reading a magazine called Hot Iron on the uh, on the Washington, D.C. Metro. <laughs> they kind of move away a little bit, if you know what I mean. Well, I uh, I told Tim that his, uh, his publication is so filled with interesting stuff that it's a shame that it's only it only reaches... Um, those of us fortunate enough to be on his uh, mailing or subscription list. And I told him that what he should do is take all the back issues, put them all together, create a, an anthology, uh, go to um, one of these just-in-time publishers, 
and put it together as a kind of a book. I mean, uh, and then we would all be able to 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 read and uh, and kind of uh, go through the, the the back issues of this thing. And uh, so Tim said he, he's thinking about it, but he, he already came up with a uh, a possible title. And you know, it's it refers to uh, solder joints, and it refers to the fact that this would be kind of old back issues. And he he, he proposed uh, dry joints. This guy's going to get me arrested. You know, they're going to be seeing me sitting on the Washington, D.C. Metro, first reading Hot Iron, and then, then uh, you know, pulling out my anthology called Dry Joints. I don't know, Tim. I think we have to, we're going to have to work on work on the title. But uh, thanks for the mail, and I'll, I'll go back into the mailbox next time and uh, get to those items that we didn't reach this week. Uh, we're going to close uh, this um FDIM episode with a collection of uh, bluegrass music recorded by Bob Crane as he made his way through the uh, Four Days in May event. Uh, thanks again, Bob. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, Consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi! I've never been so